welcome back. You're listening to another incredible episode of Inside Soccer. With your host, Bill Peterson. Inside Soccer brings you the soccer fan. Expert analysis and opinion on the critical issues facing the game today. Bill will also bring you guests that have incredible stories and historical perspectives on the game. With soccer experience spanning 20 years, the Rolodex is open to bring you the voices and opinions you want. Sit back and wherever you are in the world, enjoy today's episode. Welcome Inside Soccer listeners. My name is Bill Peterson and this is Inside Soccer episode 20. Who would have ever imagined we would have made it to 20? I want to thank everybody who joins us each week in and out from around the world. We appreciate you listening and uh, we've got a great episode for you today. This episode is brought to you by Top Sport Solutions. If you have a challenge, Top Sport has a solution. Today we're going to go way out of my comfort zone but discuss a topic that to me is, is is so obvious and should be at or near the top of every strategy and every planning conversation that goes on in the sport of soccer in this country. We're talking futsal. And I almost guarantee you when we finish, you'll be as hyped about this sport as I am right now. The opportunities to get more kids over balls is almost limitless and the skills developed are extraordinary. Our guest, a real builder of the game on many levels for many years. And it's a long list, so I'm only going to touch on a couple of of the accomplishments. 12 years as a professional player. The first MISL player ever drafted. And if you can name the team without looking it up, I'll send you the shirt off my back because I would have never guessed this one. But he was the first ever MISL player drafted. Uh, 30 years or maybe more, because I don't know where it stops and starts, of coaching. Uh, More years even as a technical director. The all-time winningest coach in North American indoor soccer. Eight times named Coach of the Year. Drum roll, please. Welcome the extraordinary Keith Dozier. Keith, welcome to Inside Soccer. Hey, Bill. It's great to be on the show. Uh, I love the first ever drafted player. That is a trivia question there, uh, and we've got to figure out a way to get it uh, uh, used more often. Can I, can I throw a hint? Yeah. Pete Rose Ooh. was the owner. Oh, I didn't even know that. And he kicked out the opening ball. Oh, I love Pete Rose. Yeah, that was great. Actually, a year ago, I got a FedEx package. And I opened the FedEx package, and it was a, said, it it was at one of his jerseys, uh, signed by him. He said some really nice things on it, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. First year, nineteen seventy eight, actually. So we end up talking about. I grew up in Western PA. We end up talking about football a lot of times, and the influence the Steelers had on, on me and others uh, in Western PA. And and the Pirates won two World Series in the seventies. But everyone, when they got on base, was Pete Rose. Everyone was Charlie Hustle. Everyone started sliding into the bag head first, had to get dirty, you know, the whole thing. That guy was a he – yeah. was, he was legend. He was a legend. And I remember back to when Pittsburgh was winning, it was uh, We Are Family, right? That yeah, 79. Song. Myron Cope. Yep. Created, created the – Terrible towel. Terrible towel. And I was playing there. I, I was actually – Oh, that's right. I think I was bought from Hartford to Pittsburgh and my agent called me up and said, by the way, you're going to Pittsburgh. And I'm like, Pittsburgh, <laughs> well, what's in Pittsburgh? And you know, 
Bill, I actually fell in love with the city. Yeah. I mean, a city is all great with buildings, but it's the people that make it. And that was a beer and a shot. That was a sports orientated ethnic. Tell it like it is. I mean, I had such a wonderful time and learned a lot. Yeah, no, and, and there's still there's still some of that there. I don't get back as often as I'd like to, but you know, it was uh, everything was much simpler back then. Everybody worked hard, everybody played hard, everybody loved their teams, and and we were so fortunate, you know, to have both the Pirates and the Steelers winning championships throughout the '70s. It was a, it was a great time to be a sports fan and and to live in that area. But man, did they influence a lot of kids? I mean, every day we were out playing and, and rep, you know, sort of replicating the moves and the lineups and all that of depending on what season it was. So it was, it was, it was a cool time for sure. Can, can I tell you something very interesting about that franchise? Yeah. And I had them on, uh, on my show uh, in April is the front office was run by a guy named Chris Wright. Chris then went on to be the president of the Minnesota Timberwolves for 20 years. And he is the president of, Minnesota FC and MLS. Now, another guy in that office who sold group tickets for Chris and our franchise, his name is Lenny Kamarowski. Oh. He's been he's been the president of the Cleveland Cavs for 15, 20 years. And wait, I'm not done. Then there is a guy who also sold tickets and he was part of the PR program. And his name was John Paul Della Camera. Wow. Fox Sports. So yeah. you had three guys right there. Who yeah. Amazing. So you're cutting into one of my questions I was going to ask anyway. I had it on the margin, but uh, did you come across any of the Lie Wiki brothers on the indoor days? Oh, sure. Tim and Todd and Terry. And actually, they were on my show. And and it was amazing because, you see, Tim is up in Seattle with yep. the NHL team. Obviously, uh, well, Todd's the president of the team, and Tim's running the company that's building the arena. That's correct. Okay. So they all came, and even Terry. So I had Tim, Terry, and Todd on the show. And and obviously, back in Kansas City days, when uh, Todd and Tim were with the Comets, they actually brought music to the game of indoor soccer before it went to the NBA and NHL and the NFL. And, and from there, the lasers, the fog, and the music then was born. Amazing story. It was, uh, so <laughs> we're deep into this. This is episode 20, Inside Soccer. I'm on question four. We haven't even got to the introduction yet. Uh, we're talking about indoor soccer before we get to futsal. Uh, our guest, Keith Tozier, uh, was the first ever draft choice of an indoor team that uh, we know came from Cincinnati. You need to guess the name of the team. Uh, and we're talking about indoor soccer here. So uh, it was, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to work with Tim for six years in Los Angeles, and and we were gathering MLS teams like people gather uh, acreage, and um, you know the stories that would come back about their indoor days were always captivating to me because it was really, you know, there was a lot of barnstorming there, there was a lot of plowing snow or shoveling snow, depending on what city you were in. Uh, there was a lot of work and, uh, you know, the old photos in Kansas city of them down in the literally, literally in the boiler room, uh, working. Uh, did you know Dan counts? Do you know Dan counts? I know Dan very well. Okay. So Dan was the president of the Rapids when I first joined AEG and Dan used to, t he played for Tim in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And he would tell these stories. He <laughs> and I don't know that he actually appreciated it, you know, as much as maybe he he, he does now. But 
he would talk about every day practice was an end, and Tim would like, hey, I got the net and the balls in the trunk, let's go. And he, he would just set up shop on some corner and start kicking balls and selling tickets. And, you know, that's uh, that was the spirit of it, and it was amazing. But uh, one of the one of the, the questions I did have for you, I, I love the history. I love digging into it a little bit. I'm not as good at it as I'd like to, but – it, it amazes me that the indoor teams and some of the early NASL teams, et cetera, they found the soccer hubs. And it seems like today sometimes we really struggle with finding where the fan bases are. Is, is, there, is there some rhyme or reason? Do you have a theory on, on why or how they were able to do that? I mean, Cincinnati. I mean, and, it, and it's dormant forever. And now it's back and it's drawing great. It's incredible. Uh, I still don't know why somebody's not in Baltimore, but it seems like that would be a place as, as well that had great indoor success. And there's these other pockets of, of places that performed well or, or, or supported teams very well back in the early days, indoor and outdoor, and, and then we sort of forgot about them. But when you go back to them, they do very well. Well, you, you know, you had so many great owners back then, and, and obviously you have so many great owners now. And that old saying, it always starts at the top. Uh, go go to L.A. I was fortunate enough to coach the L.A. Lasers for three-plus years, and that was Jerry Buss and Jim Buss of the L.A. Lakers. And, and it was great that Jim texted me last night after they won, and he said, one more to go. Um, and, and then, obviously, the L.A. Galaxy then came there after the Lasers, and they've done quite well. You know, you had the Bartolos in Pittsburgh and also in San Francisco, and, you know, those became hotbeds of, of soccer. Cincinnati, like you said, you know, our, our team actually did quite well at Riverfront Coliseum. And, you know, because Pete left and went to Philadelphia, the team folded. Uh, but years later, you know, guys came back there. So it's really it has a lot to do with an ownership group and then the people that the ownership group knows. Look at J- James Cavanaugh. He played for me in L.A. I, I traded him to St. Louis. He became a billionaire and he just bought the MLS team in St. Louis. And obviously we know the history behind St. Louis and, and, you know, he hires, you know, some guys that play for the steamer. So, you know, it really starts at the top the ownership group, the people, we know, and the people that they bring in. Well, and those were days when people really were barnstormers. They were ticket sales people. Uh, you know, when I think about Clyde and NASL, you th- you know, when I worked for the NFL, I mean, Lamar Hunt would call me from Kansas City into Amsterdam and go, hey, Bill, you got any good ideas to sell tickets? I'm just checking with everybody. You know, he was he was at a place he didn't need to do that, in my opinion, but he knew it was still about filling the seats, and he was a, he was a promoter at heart, and he wanted people in the stands, and that's what he focused on, and that's what he worked on, at least uh, in, in, in my interactions with him. And there were so many of those guys that they really understood, you know, uh, how to get out in the streets and how to shake a hand and how to convince somebody to part with their money and buy a ticket. And today, uh, and I'll say this, you know, too many people, I think, believe they're going to convince someone through a computer to go to a a game or a match. And I think you got to get out in the streets. You got to get out there. You got to be part of the community. You got to touch people with athletes and coaches and all that. And, you know, that's how you get it going. Bill, you hit it right right down the middle, about 300 yards, because Chris Wright, Lenny, Tim, Todd, and Terry all said in that Zoom call, was back then when they came up with the promotion, and Pittsburgh was the first team in any sport to do the four sodas, the four popcorns, four tickets, four hot dogs, 
And they said when they came up for the promotion, it wasn't, hey, go put it on Twitter and go put it on Instagram right. and Facebook. You had to go make, listen to this, you had to go make a flyer. And then, then, then you had to take those flyers and you had to get players. And you had to say, hey, you're going to go to churches and schools and, and sit in a corporation in a factory at lunchtime and you're going to hand out the flyers. And those, all those men said that indoor soccer, kind of like minor league baseball, kind of like baseball, was a proven ground for yeah. your imagination as a promoter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So those were fun days. Those were, uh, I love that stuff. That's, uh, that's great stuff. But we got to move on because we got a bigger topic here. And, and that is that is futsal. Um, I, I I don't want to over be too dramatic here, but I, I think this is one of the the best buys out there that nobody's seeing. You know, and and when I came back to the U.S. in 2000, worked for AEG, one of the first things I saw that I thought was a great opportunity was the Mexican national team in the United States. It was being run. You know, basically, I forget how it was being run, but it was being run, and uh, there wasn't really a plan behind it other than how much cash can we get on any given night. We went in, took a year and a half, got the deal done at AEG. We ran the team until it was too successful. Then MLS got it. Uh, but that was the last great property I saw that was underdeveloped. This one, I think, Futsal, is in the same place. And so what I want to try to do today is get my head around it, give our listeners a chance to better understand it and understand from you who, who you know, you live it day in, day out, where's it going, what's it going to take, and what's it going to look like in a few years. So uh, maybe we start off with, with, with how you got involved with it. So we've talked a little bit about your, your role as a player and a coach, and I do want to come back to that. Uh, we'll do it at the end. Uh, and talk about some of the great players and coaches you've worked with and saw in the past. But let's move to futsal. How did you get there? You know, I played in Pittsburgh, and for six years, I left Pittsburgh to become a player coach for the Louisville Thunder because I knew that after I was done playing, I needed to do something else. So I I was kind of like the GM uh, of team operations. I was the coach, and I was the player. And my ex-coach, John Kowalski, who was my coach in Cincinnati, in Hartford, in Pittsburgh, became the national team coach. And FIFA, in 1986, started the first, they didn't even call it futsal then, started the first world five-a-side invitation tournament in Budapest, Hungary. So John said, hey, Keith, I'd like for you to come and try out for for the national team. And I said, well, you know, I'm up in Milwaukee. We're playing a game but I can come to New York. Now, listen, I don't know if you know some of these guys. I said, John, just put us five guys on the court. So it was Zoran Savick, who's been the assistant coach for Kansas City uh, for years. Mike Windishman, who national team outdoor. Uh, Jimmy Cabrera, who went on the star, you know, with the national team outdoor. Obviously, uh, Washington in, in the women's league. Uh, A.J. Lakowicki in goal. And he put us all out on, on, on the court, and, and we did unblow up. And Chris Hollenkamp. So next thing you know, I was in Budapest and fell in love with futsal. And then spring forward, uh, I had the opportunity to become an interim coach for John because he was coaching Miami in MLS. So he went to the first CONCACAF qualifiers and we won the gold medal. And next thing you know, I became the head coach and did that for 20 years, but fell in love with the game, very similar to indoor soccer. And of course, is a great developer. 
corrupt report. So I think a lot of people may know this, but just in case they don't, how how is futsal structured within U.S. soccer? Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> there is no coaching education for futsal within U.S. soccer. There is coaching education uh, within U.S. youth futsal, which is a member of U.S. soccer, which I'm the technical director for. Right. The, o- the only team that U.S. soccer has as a national team for futsal is the men's national team. So there's no women teams. There's no youth teams. Uh, the DA used to have some futsal showcases, but they, they discarded that, and I could talk to you for an hour on that. Um, so the only thing they have right now is is the men's national team, coached by one of former players of mine, Otto Orff, who was the goalkeeper of the tournament um, in, in CONCACAF championships. But, you know, recently I was with Anson Dorrance at North Carolina using futsal as part of his um, identification camp down there. And then Anson and I did something together, which was standing room only at the coaches convention in Baltimore. And he says, Oh my God, futsal is the game changer, you know? And, and, but U.S. soccer hasn't bought onto it yet. So hopefully you'll buy into it. Is there a reason for that? You think, is it just uh, priorities or is it people don't understand the game or there's not enough attention? How can that be? I mean, it's a large organization. There's no doubt about it, but, but how can that be? Again, like we talked about uh, different cities being successful, and I said owners and people who they bring in, it's the same thing. Hugo Salcedo, his son, used to coach UCLA. (laughs) Hugo, when he worked for CONCACAF, he was a futsal guy. Yeah. So he, man, we were doing coaching education in the CONCACAF. We were doing competition, and Hugo left, and futsal left, basically. Okay, I mean, there's still futsal, but... It's not what it used to be. There's no one within U.S. soccer family other than the two coaches, Dusan uh, and, and Otto, that are futsal guys. If we could get someone in U.S. soccer and have them buy into it. I, I told you this when we were talking on the phone. If U.S. soccer would give me $5 million, we'd start a program in the inner cities and ur- urban areas around the country, and we would bring futsal to every basketball court and futsal court. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we would find some special players. I have to believe that. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's even easier now to play than organized in club soccer, just because of the expense and everything that's involved in the time and the energy and the travel and everything else to play at a high level. Uh, here you've got, and, and, and I and I believe this. I don't. I don't have any research, and I'm not. I'm not involved in your organization. But you know, if you look at the population centers and how many great players we get from the population centers, and compare that to other sports, I think soccer's way behind. And part of it is obviously you know the fields uh, and the and the facilities. Let's just call it facilities. And this would start to address some of that. Plus. And I hope I'm, I'm okay saying this, but a lot of our, 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 our inner city populations will understand futsal much better than the people, you know, here where I'm at today, uh, because they've come from different places in the world that, that actually, you know, recognize it or play it more often. But even if you don't know anything about it, if you roll a ball out to a bunch of kids, they're going to figure it out. 
You know, I played hockey growing up along with football. Baseball was typical American. But when I went into indoor soccer, I felt comfortable. It was, yeah, artificial turf. But I kind of understood the boards and knew where the penalty box was. And, and I felt great. And, and, and maybe some of the young players, both boys and girls in the inner city, they feel comfortable on a court that's not four by 54 or 100 by, by 60. And again, you know, I told you too that, you know, we went to Akron in the inner city and, and Otto Orff built a futsal court there. And in three hours after watching young kids who've never touched the soccer ball, I could have put a list together that said, oh my God, watch them, watch them, watch them. And, and part of that $5 million bill, it would be that we would find young people and give them money for education. So if you would go to Detroit and L.A. and Baltimore and Miami and say, by the way, we're coming there to identify some young players on a futsal court and the top players that we find, there's going to be money for you for education. I'm guaranteeing you we would have lines out the door. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, there's just it just uh, it seems so obvious to get more people involved and you know, there may not be – even the school systems, the public school systems that that you know are, are struggling right now with the high cost of everything, including sports programs. Here's one where you already have facilities built, and you basically need some balls and I guess some uniforms, right? And and that's it. And, and off we go. And uh, the amount of people that you could impact positively by giving them, you know, a team situation. Uh, allowing them to develop physical skills, keeping them off the street, uh, you know, a, a sense of pride at home because they're part of a team. There's just the list is long, as you know, Keith, and and it just seems obvious to me that boy, you know, soccer's leaving the school systems at least everywhere I've been uh, in the last fifteen twenty years, uh, and it's moving to the clubs. And, you know, I've got different feelings about that, but I do believe we lose opportunities to expose people to the game when it leaves the high school or it's not important at the high school level uh, or it's looked down upon. And here's a chance to do something with a sport that, you know, stands on its own and is is a positive again and, and brings people into the game. You know who's trying to do that is Anson. Anson is trying to get futsal in all the elementary and secondary schools in the state of North Carolina. And basically, like you said, there's gyms, there's tennis courts, there's basketball courts. All you need is a couple of futsal goals and a ball and, and, and you're off and running. And, and, you know, in 2007, Bill, I don't know if you know the story, the Solomon Islands FA got together and said, hey, by the way, guys, are we going to really win the Outdoor World Cup? I don't know. But maybe we can do something in the futsal world. And here's the great story about this. And get young people off the street and save lives and maybe create a better outdoor player as we go along this journey. 2008, they qualified. 2012, they won Oceana for the Futsal World Cup. They didn't score any goals. They won in, in 2016. They won a game at the World Cup. And in 2020, before the pandemic, they were winners of Oceana. And some of their players have gone on to play professional outdoor in Europe. You know what happened? Some of the other islands said, hey, by the way, what Solomon Islands can do. So Bora Bora, New Zealand, Australia, now Trinidad, Tobago. And, and it's, it's spreading. I mean, it's here, and I think it's exciting, as you can tell in my voice. Is there, is there a commitment from CONCACAF? Because this seems to fit right in with, with them, too. 
Well, you know, when Hugo left, we we took a step back. Uh, before, mm. when he was there, uh, there was a bunch of us that were down in Costa Rica and we were putting together the first ever CONCACAF coaching uh, manuals together. Uh, and then it kind of fizzed out. There's great Guatemala, Costa Rica. Right. Uh, they have professional leagues now in futsal. Uh, so it's still there. But, you know, Brazil obviously is huge. Uh, Argentina, Spain as the top pro league in the world, Russia, Iran, Japan. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. So Hugo, um, I exchanged some emails with him a few weeks ago. I didn't realize he had retired. I'd been out of touch with him for a year or two, but when I first went to AEG, I brought Hugo on as an advisor for soccer and Jurgen on as an advisor for soccer. And Hugo, we talked. I talked about the Mexican national team. That's really, that's really all Hugo, because hmm. Hugo said, "Look, if you really want to get into something and make some money, here's a property that's you know underdeveloped, if you will." And I used to take him to Mexico. We used to go, I think, almost every week. And he'd go with me, and you know, in his quiet way, he'd always be right behind me, going, "You know, Bill, maybe you want to think about this. Maybe you want to think about that." Uh, none of that gets done, including uh, the MLS owning that property today without Hugo Salcedo. So he's meant a lot to me. He's always been a wise man and a funny guy, too, once you get to know him. But, uh, boy, he uh, – uh, Yeah, he, uh, he's, um, he's dedicated his entire life to the game. So um, I'm glad to hear you bring up his name I, I'm sad to see that it goes away a little bit, though, because your your Solomon Island story is exactly what you know a lot of these places in Concacaf need. And um, golly, I mean, that would be it'd just be you know the, the struggles as you well know are, are the travel costs going from island to island and you know moving around and doing things that it's it's not easy to do. Uh, it's not like driving from Florida to Georgia. Um, but, boy, that would make sense if you had a smaller travel team and different parties and easier on the facilities and, you know, how hard it is for them to keep up facilities, uh, when especially in this time of the year when there's a storm about every other week. But, um, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that happened in the last 10 years is when all the top players in the world – got into social media and said, by the way, I am who I am because in my country I grew up playing futsal. Uh, you know, when th- that all was like a stamp. I remember years ago when Brazil played the United States at Giant Stadium, I did a futsal seminar for 200 coaches for U.S. soccer at the end of their outdoor thing. And, you know, the end of a convention, everybody just wants to get out. So these guys, they want to go drink beer. They, they want to go see the game. And I, I said, hey, just give me a few minutes. I said, if, you know, if there was a product out there that was very cheap that would make your players better physically, mentally, tactically, would you buy it? And they all looked at me like, okay. So I said, I have it. And I put futsal up on a big screen. And I said, by the way, there's four guys that are going to play against the USA team tonight who came from just, just came from futsal. And Neymar, that was his first game for Brazil. Okay. And Brazil beat the United States three, nothing. And I was, I told them, Hey, you're going to see this and you're going to see that. And they do these things. And then after the game, before the game, not many people wanted to talk to me. after the game. A lot of people wanted to talk, to me. but I'm, I'm hoping that us, uh, us soccer buys into it. I think it's the fast track to find different players. I think it's, uh, 
It's a great game on its own. There is a little lineage here between Anson and uh, the president, so maybe now's the time to take advantage of that, right? <laughs> and I understand they're going through some uh, some resetting of the strategy. I don't know what that means, but uh, it uh, might be a good time for him to whisper in someone's ear in Chicago that – this would be a great alternative. And, you know, even for the foundation, I mean, the foundation, and, and again, I'm not up to speed with all their activities, but for a long time, they were talking about doing some things in inner cities and, and I don't know what they've done or not done, but building a, a, a regulation size soccer pitch and maintaining it, you know, and not putting people under so much duress to maintain it, whether it's grass or turf, is a huge, huge effort and timely and costly over years, not just one-time cost. Here, God, you could take up all these old tennis courts that aren't being used and gymnasiums that have free time. Uh, there's just so many opportunities. Again, buy a ball, let's go. No, that's what they've done. Because as you said, U.S. Soccer Foundation mantra after the, the World Cup years ago, said, let's go to inner city, build outdoor fields, get the inner city player to come in, blah, blah, blah. First of all, it's too expensive. You can't find space to put a big field. And you already alluded to the fact, who's going to take care of it? You know, it gets damaged and you got to grow grass. So they they turn big time and now they're building, they call it mini pitches. You can call it anything you want, but they're building mini pitches all over the country. Adidas and Target said they're going to do 100 of them each. So U.S. Soccer Foundation now is building basically futsal courts instead of outdoor courts. And you're going to see a big ripple effect down the road. Yeah. Now they need to come back with some coaching and a little bit of uh, promotion for the sport. I mean, you know, that's that's a huge opportunity for them. Uh, I, I, they've done a wonderful job. They've, they've been at the U.S. Soccer I mean, USC Coaches Convention, they had a different field there. They call it mini futsal. I would love, I mean, uh, mini pitch. I would love for them to call it futsal. But again, call it whatever you want. <laughs> kids are playing, right? Kids are playing, getting kids off the street. And, and the physicality I love about it, look, look at the NBA player right now. You know, 20 years ago, when you were 6'8", six, 6'7", six, you were like the big man on the court, right? And, and you didn't move that you moved well, but look at guys now. Guys are six, eight, seven feet. They they move like they're six two. And why? Because they, they play in a small court and it creates a different physicality in a player. So yeah. Uh physicality, uh speed, um speed you know, thought. just 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 ball football skills. Um yeah, it's tight. I've watched it. It's 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 got a lot going on for it. That's for sure. And um, would be an incredible development tool. My my daughter. People get tired here about my daughter. She played one year, and then that was sort of it. I don't know what. I don't know if that was on us or on the organization, whatever. But it didn't seem to be uh, offered again. Uh, it was hard. It was hard. It was not something uh, I would say that the kids all enjoyed uh, right out of the gate, but. Man, it was you know from from a development standpoint, you could see all the things that it was doing to uh, to help them become better players and and just to be free thinkers as well. You know, it's hundred percent. Yeah, 100%. yeah. Here is what a lot of the guys in MLS say who came from the indoor game. They all say that they wish some of their players would go play indoor soccer or futsal for one year 
because you become a better defender. Now, I travel the country before the pandemic so much. I go to so many different cities to teach. Bill, so many of our young players do not know how to defend by themselves. So if you don't know how to defend by yourself, how do you defend with one other player who's a cover player? And if those two don't know how to defend, how do you defend with three and four? So what indoor soccer and futsal does, it teaches you how to defend by yourself, you know, which way to press, uh, what's the speed of your opponent, you, you, knees not locked. I mean, all these little things that they teach in basketball. Yeah. And, and, and I, think, I think the more we get it, the better we're going to be for it. Hey, you know what? Here's the thing. What do we got to lose? Right. I mean, we didn't qualify for the last World Cup, and that's okay. I mean, it's very daunting and everything. But what do we got to lose? Throw, throw a bunch of money in the futsal. Say, let's go create a different player. Let's do something different along with everything else we're doing. And maybe Christian Pulisic grew up in the indoor soccer and futsal. Yeah, I, I look. It's it's an opportunity. There's there's more than enough money in the sport in this country. That's for sure. Five million dollars is a rounding error, and there's there's programs they can't even they don't even know they're running that cost more than that probably. But it, you could you could invest that money and be one of the top countries in the world in the sport, and that's how I think the federation should be looking at is. Is there an opportunity, not just to be there, but if I'm the federation, is there an opportunity to be, you know, one of the top countries in the world? And the only re- the way to do that is develop, you know, the systems down below it and the players and the development and the coaching and everything else, and then we become one of the top countries. So can we do that? Yes, we can for what is, you know, pretty small amount of money compared to some of the other programs. And by the way, it is an Olympic organization, and I know – you know, the, the, there's there's a separation there with soccer versus some other sports, but uh, this one could also. Uh, I guess they don't play in the Olympics. Um, that's too bad because that could have been a great Olympic sport, actually. Actually, in 2007, futsal was in the Pan American Games. Right. You know, and and I was coaching the team. I go see baseball. I love baseball. Not a big crowd. I go see diving. Not a big crowd. I go see fencing or track and everything. You know, okay crowds. The futsal was standing room only every game. Every game standing in Rio de Janeiro. The following Pan American Games, I believe, was in Toronto or Mexico. And we said, hey, for sure it's going to be there. They dropped it. Now, soccer and futsal was in the Junior Olympics in Argentina just recently. And it was sold out every game. Well, you know, the same in the U.S. There's going to need to be some some people like yourself and Anson and others, you know, really put their arms around this and, and, and march into the halls and say, look, there's a reason to do this. And people believe in it and they want to do it. Same thing for the Olympic movement. I mean, it's all political. Um, the great news is it's soccer. Uh, seems like that right now would be something that's more attractive around the rest of the world than – you know, some other things I could think of. Um, so anyway, uh, the, the, yeah, you, you got to get a group behind it and you got to push forward. Let me ask you this question. Why the lack of women? And I'm afraid I know the answer to this, but I want to hear yours first. Why aren't the women playing? Uh, that's a great question. You know, three, four years ago, uh, Ali Long called me 
and said, coach, do we have a national team for women? And I said, unfortunately, we don't. She said, well, I'm on the computer and Iran has it. Malaysia has it. China has it. Russia has it. And we're the world champion. How come we don't have one? And I'm like, I don't know. And, and there are so many other women that, that are former teammates of her, current teammates of her, and said, God, it'd be great to have a futsal program. And, and you know, the story behind Ali is, you know, when she left North Carolina, she, I mean, she won a national championship. She couldn't get to the national team. I don't know if you know this story, but no. her boyfriend would play futsal four to five nights a week in New York City for these games that if you got the championship, you made a bunch of money. And in the semifinal of the game uh, of the tournament, a player got ejected. Another player got hurt. And the coach said, hey, Holly, you, you got your equipment with you? We'd love to have you play in the final. And she played in the final. She went on to play five or six men's games every week in New York City. And it changed her game in the mid-20s. And by the way, she hosted the World Cup trophy in France. So, uh, I, I again, I, I don't have an answer. I, and by the way, I think. And Anson said the same thing. We think that if we had a women's national team futsal, that we would catapult to one of the top teams in the world in a very short period of time. And maybe how many years? I don't know. No disrespect because there's wonderful women's teams around the world and maybe become the world champion in futsal too. I wouldn't put it past the women of this country. I, I, I you know, I don't want to get too philosophical, but the rest of the world is starting to play women's soccer, uh, more so in the last decade than, than ever before. And the next decade, you're going to see the emergence of some countries that maybe didn't exist in the 90s or early 2000s as powerhouses. And it's nice that we are, you know, where we are in that, in that, in that lineup, but we got to keep pressing. And, and this to me seems like if I was responsible for the future of women's soccer, this seems like a, a good strategy to help develop players, create a larger pipeline for those players, uh, maybe develop skills that, guess what, the women in other parts of the world are developing uh, that maybe we're not. Some of the stuff you just talked about, uh, I wouldn't leave a stone unturned and, and rest on our laurels here. And I think this is just a great example and also just a, the right thing to do. I mean – we, we have the best women's soccer in the world right now. Why wouldn't we play? You know, why, why not? I think women's soccer is just fabulous in this country. And, you know, I knew, I knew Anson and Anson and I would talk, but I never spent any time with Anson. And, and a year and a half ago, he invited me to North Carolina. I stayed at his house. I really got to know him and we're sitting in his kitchen the second day I was there and I was having a cup of coffee with him and his wife. And I said, you know what's amazing about you, coach? And he says, what's that? He goes, you have won 25 national championships. And you think that futsal is going to be the game changer for the U.S. and for your team to stay above the next person. And we have people who haven't won anything who don't believe in it. And to me, and, and that's the opening statement I said at the coaches' convention when soccer met futsal and Anson and I did something together, I said to the crowd with no disrespect, if this man who's, who's created Mia Hamm and Ali Long and, and all the other wonderful players 
uh, for, for the national team through North Carolina. If he believes in it and he's won championships, what have we won and why don't we? And what do you have to lose? Yeah, well said. Um, and that's exactly what it's going to take. It's going to take someone like him with people like you uh, working together to really drive this and push it through. But you know, it's such a big country. Uh, we, we face challenges because we're so big, but it is a growing soccer nation, and we better give the kids an opportunity to play and play often and play well, or we'll lose them to something else uh, in the future. So, wow. Um, I told you I was going to get hyped up. I am. I just see, I just see opportunities, uh, blinking before my eyes here. And I hope, uh, I hope it happens. I, it's exciting. It's fun to watch. It's quick. You're right. You know, it's the indoor game. I wish that would pick up as well. Uh, why, why do you think that ultimately went away? I think it's coming back and, and I'll tell you why again, back in the early days of indoor soccer, we've already mentioned the, the Bartolos and, and the Kenny Stearns and, and the bus family. And, and there were some wonderful owners. I mean, look at MLS now. I mean, Don Garber, actually Don and I went to the same college, graduated in the same year. Don Garber's done an unbelievable job with major league soccer. Uh, and I think that indoor soccer lost its way a little bit. I thought, I thought it lost its message that it is a developer of player. Look at Precky. Brecky's the only two-time back-to-back MVP of Major League Soccer, and he played 12 years in indoor soccer. I think indoor soccer lost their message. I think if they gain the message back of what it does, what a great game it's on its own, and it's blending with futsal right now, and the ownership group that they have now is getting better and better and better, I think you're going to see big things happening in, in the indoor soccer. And, and the PFL, which is – I'm the commissioner of that one, and we haven't started yet. I mean, Donnie Nelson, president of the Mavics, Mark Cuban – the Jim Bus has franchises. You know, hopefully, once the PFL starts, this is all going to blend together, and we're going to create great players. When do you think? Happens. When do you think that'll begin? You know, Bill, this this pandemic thing just really threw. Right. We we've done we've done four or five great events in Dallas at the Dr Pepper Arena, uh, at the Sidekick Arena. We did it at uh, the Wild World of Sports. Actually, where the NBA is playing the finals right now. We bought the two best players in the world, Ricardinho and Falcao, and brought 22 players from around the world for an event there, and, and it was sold out. Oh, wow. Um, so with the pandemic, uh, I don't know, but I, I hope soon. I, I think indoor soccer, I think futsal has a, a big market. I, I think it's going to grow, and I think with outdoor soccer, with what Don's doing and Major League Soccer, it'll all funnel to the national team, and when it does that – then you got your pyramid, which is what you want, and you're, you're going to win world championships. Yeah. I mean, there's a player development side. There's also a fan development side. I mean, not every city is going to have an MLS team. And, uh, you know, for them to avoid uh, the regionality of maybe the NHL, you know, having a separate league that plays for trophies, not, not a minor league, a separate league, an indoor league, uh, having futsal leagues, all that just to entertain and develop fans – Seems to me like that would make sense. I mean, I would love to watch good indoor soccer. I would go, I would pay money to do that just because of the pace and the skills and you're sitting right on top of it. You know, it's just, and it's just different. It's, it would be fun to do. I I think the future is bright. I think, 
for the game of futsal. It's grown rapidly. Again, the pandemic came on. Um, hopefully indoor soccer will do something after the new year uh, with, with the pandemic going. Uh, you know, we have a World Cup for futsal. We have confederation championships. There is a – UEFA is great. They, they have a Champions League. They have a European championship. They, you know, all the top teams in, in Europe have futsal teams. Yep. So, you know, hopefully sooner or later it's going to come to the United States. Wow. Uh, you know, we talked about it. We could do this all day. I think we could continue to talk about it, but the time is, is flying by, uh, Keith, and we probably need to, uh, try to find a way to wrap this up. So let me ask you a couple questions and do it sort of uh, quick fire style. Um, let's go back to your playing and coaching days in, in indoor soccer. Who is, who is the best player you ever saw in person? played against that too so steve? yes and no steve zungle okay steve zungle i'll tell you why hector marinero and 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 Preki and bronco sagoda those guys had great shots you had eric rasmussen and chico borja those guys were great one-on-one players and then you had guys like paul child uh jan goosens uh julie v who were great around the box zungle all those. He was a tough guy to mark. And who's the best player you've seen in television or, 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 or watched or coached against? Oh my God. There are so many great players. I mean, to, to name one, yep. I, I think would be extremely difficult. <laughs> um, I mean, and there's so many young players come it's like at golf. There's so many great young players coming up in the golf game. There's just so many great young players coming in outdoors. So, you know, when Tough to do. And, and Ronaldo and your Messi's move on, they're a whole. You know, it's, a, it's like it. It's actually it's kind of like being at a at a uh, what do you call it, a nightclub. It's like when one of those guys move on, they just open the door and they, hey, come on in. Someone else comes in. Oh my god, comes in. That's so, a great analogy. Um, you know, I, I I just wouldn't want a single one out. But okay, I, yeah, I, fair I, enough. All right, all right. Let's keep moving. Uh, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. We don't hold anybody under pressure here. Um, the most important trait for a pro coach. Oh, wow. Uh, eye for talent and the ability to teach. Yep. I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, we're down to the last two. Is there anything we should have asked you that we didn't? I have a podcast called The World of Futsal. Yes. And and where do people find that? They can go, you know, iHeart. They can go to Apple, iTunes. They Anywhere you find your podcast, you can go to it. Um, I This is your 20th show. I think you're doing such an awesome job, Bill. Um, you know, I, I've done over 100. Uh, they're not easy. I love your format. Um, and I've had Anson. I've had Ali Long. I've had Landon Donovan. You know, there's been the top players and coaches from around the world. And it's kind of like Netflix, right? That's what's great about podcasts. You can go back to a podcast and you can go all the way back to season one. So, yeah. World of Futsal. Yeah. Okay. World of Futsal. Uh, I'll be tuned in. I've got the page saved uh, on my computer already. Uh, last question, Keith. Uh, any great stories you want to share with our listeners? Or story? You know, no, you know, it's... it's. Uh, I, I was blessed when I went to Oneonta State because they... There's so many great coaches and players that came from Oneonta. Glenn Mucci-Marnik. Uh, oh, yeah. Wow. From from Hartwick, 
uh, uh, Fruit Carishi was a, a teammate of mine at Oneonta, uh, Francisco Marcus, Al Miller, Don Garber. Uh, the, the list goes on and on. And, and by the way, there's 10, 15, 20 more people that have come out of Oneonta that are involved in the game. I was blessed to go there. That was something that I was just some typical American playing a bunch of sports. I really focused on soccer. Was there a reason for that? Were people going there because of soccer and, and then coming out or once they got there, they were being converted? Um, I, I, you know, um, Al Miller coached at Hartwick. Um, you know, he brought in some, some great coaches. He brought in Jimmy Lennox and, and then Francisco Marcus, he actually got me involved uh, on the U.S. team in a, in a youth tournament, and that's why I went to Oneonta. And then I think just one thing led to another. And back then, Hartwick and Oneonta were some of the top teams in the country, and, and people just wanted to go and play there. I mean, the, the Hall of Fame used to be there, Soccer Hall of Fame. So, that's right. Um, I, I got so many stories, um, but I, I have to say I met so many wonderful men and women involved in this game from the youth through the pros to the nationals that I've been blessed to be a part and a small part of all this. Well, we appreciate having you on and you are one of the, the true builders of the sport in this country. Uh, I know I and, and our listeners really enjoy uh, listening to those stories. It's the purpose of this podcast is to, to find the people who rolled up their sleeves and, and go out every day and try to make it better and have made it better. And you are, uh, you are a leader of that group. So, so let me wrap this up, Keith. Uh, one, we appreciate you being on today. What a great episode. Uh, you've made my week. You've brought myself and, and all of our listeners so much new information, a lot to think about. Uh, it's exactly why we created Inside Soccer. So we want to thank you for that. For our listeners, uh, please keep listening and share with your friends and the groups that you're involved with uh, all of these episodes. Uh, make sure that anyone you know uh, knows what we're doing here and check us out and follow us or like us, whatever it may be, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social platforms. We'll keep talking. We'll keep taking you inside soccer, and we appreciate you. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.